I will freely say that as an autistic, I fully support you just completely going off the rails and talking about shit that only you care about. Like, live exactly. your best life, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this to you. I'm, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm giving this information at you. Oui, c'est vrai. Je suis un nanana. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton. I'm not a Tourette. Don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict. Welcome back to Fep. Knew it was going to get me at some point. I knew that was going to get me at some point. Welcome back to Histories and Mysteries. I am Jessica. And I'm still Janelle. And I remembered that we changed the name of the show. Hooray! It took me months. It took me months to fuck that up. I was <laughs> so good. I, I remembered it. I kept it straight. And then boom, my, my record tarnished. <laughs> Damn. Well, you had a good run. We'll have to I mean, put I, you I, out to pasture now. Yeah, I'm old, I'm old and tired. I don't have the bar- the quick wit I once had. I can no longer be a podcaster. Ah, alas, alas, we'll have to. I guess throw I've you out to sea. I've grown long in the tooth and short in the mind. Now I have to go to TikTok. <laughs> Ooh, Ooh. Vine. Maybe that's where old old influencers go. They go to Vine. To die? Vine's gone. Has been a while. <laughs> that big old six second clip in the sky. <laughs> All right. Apparently, Jessica has one lapse in memory, and we're killing her. <laughs> it's, it's it's my time, Janelle. Don't be sad. Well, apparently, before we mercy kill Jessica, um, we should. Uh... It's for the best, Janelle. <laughs> it's for I've the lived, best. I've lived a good life. <laughs> oh, we're gonna we're gonna try to record another two part episode <laughs> if we can. <laughs> I knew Vancouver was having a housing crisis. I didn't think they'd reach the point of recycling people just yet. But, you know, <laughs> apparently I was wrong. It's been negative 11 for like two weeks, so I'm going to be put on an out, out on an ice floe in any second. That's unnatural. That's not a temperature Vancouver should be for two weeks. We couldn't record this last night because I had no power. The uh, mm. windstorms in Nova Scotia knocked 60,000 people off the power grid. So, you know, everything's great. The planet's yeah. not angry at all. Zeus is actively interfering with our schedule. Ah uh, yes, it's not that the planet's dying <laughs> after. Um, well, I mean, there we, there are many there are many opinions on the subject, you know. Many of them are wrong. The planet's dying. Some some people say that it is anthropogenically generated climate change, and some people blame the pagan gods. Hmm, that's a new one. I've heard a lot yeah, of. I, no, it's not. <laughs> I res- I respect all views. I respect all oh. views. <laughs> all opinions. Maybe Earth's just getting closer to the sun, and nobody noticed. Maybe that. Maybe that. Or maybe like like we were buffering, like the universe was buffering and just accidentally skipped a little bit. Maybe we live in a geocentric universe after all, and the sun is getting closer to us. Ah, think about all it. of these are just as dumb as the prevailing theories. <laughs> <laughs> that climate change is fake. All of these are just as dumb. <laughs> I, I prefer I prefer the idea that it's caused by homosexuality. <laughs> ah. I, I I don't know. I want to I want to be gay and control the weather. That's too much power for you, Jessica. You can only be gay. I'll see only We're X-Men. <laughs> I'll I'll allow you to be gay. I will not let you control Literal the weather. Literal X-Men. Oh, Think about God. it. No. No. All right. Well, while Jessica is trying to command the sea, um I guess I'm starting the podcast.
Well, uh, we're doing something a little different this week. We're not doing a murder or a disappearance. What? We are doing a person from history who had a particularly funny yeah. name, though. That's kind of the we're three We're doing topics. a really old crime, which is we're doing kind of a wheelhouse. really old crime. We're doing a crime from 1921. And as I was writing the notes, I kept writing in the year 21 and realizing, like, fuck, that was last year and 101 years ago. No, I don't like this. I know, I've fucked all the dates. Because I would have to, I'd just go, like, apostrophe 19, and I'm like, fuck, that was two years ago. (laughs) No. No, you have to specify the century now. That's where we're at. I mean, you always had to, but I don't like it. (laughs) Usually you could say back in the 20s, and it was... Yeah, it it didn't feel weird unless you were talking about, like, 1891, and then you're like, uh. (laughs) The least favorite thing I've ever heard in my entire life, on the topic of years, is I went to buy alcohol. I get carded constantly. I'm almost 30 and I still get carded. Yeah, because you have uh, big baby doll eyes. I do. You look like a haunted Victorian doll. Thank you, I think. I don't know. Fuck you. I have no idea. You actually look <laughs> like a very nice child's doll. Like, I bet I bet you belong to, like, a rich kid. Still haunted, though. Thank you. I look like, I look like a rich, haunted porcelain doll. Thank you, Jessica. <laughs> it's a compliment. <laughs> There we go. But I get carded every time I buy alcohol. A lot of like, mm, this isn't real. Yeah. But I gave, uh, I've given up on driver's licenses. I've had so many clerks accuse me of having a fake ID. I use my passport. Those are harder to fake. So I <laughs> hand the lady my passport and she's like, oh, we're good. I can see the one. I was like, what the fuck do you mean? She's like, yeah, you were born in the 1900s. I was like, oh no, don't like that. Mm-hmm. Uh-uh. Don't, don't say don't it like that, that. No, do not say it like that. Mm, don't en- don't enjoy it. Because in Nova yeah. Scotia, you can now drink, the drinking age here is 19. So, you know, you're born in 2001. You're good to go. That's weird. Don't love it. That's weird. Mm-mm. No, don't like it. Don't like it. Mm-mm. It's inappropriate. It's you're, not allowed. It's inappropriate. Against the rules. It's not allowed. <laughs> it's not allowed. <laughs> yeah, didn't love that being, oh yeah, you're born in the 1900s. Nope, don't love no, that. No, no. Um, <laughs> uh, don't remind me, I'm from a previous century. Thank you. So we are we are doing a person born two centuries ago. So we're talking about the life and times of comedian and silent film actor Roscoe Arbuckle, who is more popularly known as Fatty Arbuckle. What I used to call our fans before I, the name change, fatties. Uh, no, I never allowed it. Fatties. You did that on your own. That was <laughs> no. You. Here's the thing. I was I, never approved. Even before I said that, I I carried that on my back. For weeks. I'm sure that you did. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was in love with that. But I need to come up with a new name. Fatties in your heart, I guess. I don't know. No, none of this is good. I, And the Histy Misties is not going to work. Uh-uh. Mm-hmm. Nope, that sounds like a venereal disease. Absolutely not. <laughs> He's got a dead case of the Histy Misties, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that sounds like a tropical steamship disease. That's not great. <laughs> got the Histy Misties and he died. He's bright yellow. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like something that makes your toes and genitals fall off. Let's not do that. <laughs> and actually, I, I would say it sounds a lot more like uh, like a really old torture device. Here we have the, the Histy Misty. It's just like a fucking mm-hmm. spiked egg that goes up your ass. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hist- it sounds like a bad, like, it sounds like a bad slang term for a loose woman. Like yeah. a hundred year old term for yeah, a, a loose bit woman. Of a Misty. I don't want to yeah, around no. with a flimsy yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds like something you wouldn't be allowed to see on television today. Yeah. That's, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> Horrifying. 
Horrifying. So we are doing a crime episode, though. I don't know. I don't- I no longer know what the average age of our audience is, because we were hitting pretty solidly, like, middle-aged women. Yeah, usually. For a while. I just assume. But I don't know. Then I got famous on Twitter, and now it's a lot of dudes in their early 20s? I don't know. Oh, I don't weird. know what's happening weird. anymore. I, I've lost the it's, plot. <laughs> I've lost the plot entirely. Yeah. So I don't know how old any of you are, or what country half of you are from. So I don't know. You guys might already know quite a bit about the life and times of Fatty Arbuckle, or this might be your first time hearing about him. I, I'm, Either way. I'm going to expect for a lot of people it's a first. <laughs> I was browsing social media. How this topic came about is that I was browsing social media with my eyes half glazed over, as one does two years into this fucking pandemic, and I came across this post about the decades-long effort to make a biopic on the life of Roscoe Arbuckle. Unfortunately, though, the project to make a biopic on Roscoe Arbuckle seems to be cursed. So far, three actors have been attached at some point or another to star in this movie. Uh, it has been Jim Belushi, John Candy, and Chris Farley. Oh! Um, so, <laughs> so I don't know if you can spot the issue with that. Again, I don't know how old our audience is anymore. But uh, every leading man ever attached to this project has died before production could begin. Yeah, yeah. Um, and not, like, <laughs> gently either. No, they did not go gently into that good night. They, none of them were very old at all. Yeah, John Candy actually died at about the same age as Roscoe Arbuckle. They look very similar. Like, I'm looking they at a They look picture. very much alike. Yeah, like, I, I understand the casting. Yeah, and, but unfortunately, they, they died at the same age in similar circumstances. It was too good. The casting was too accurate. For foreboding, really. Yeah, so there was this question of, like, is the project cursed? Is the role of Roscoe Arbuckle cursed? Or, or is it just, like, anyone who, like, resembles Roscoe Arbuckle is gonna live a life that eventually fucking kills them? <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, does Hollywood just have, like, a decades-long tradition of driving talented people into early graves through a combination of exploitation, overwork, and unrealistic expectations? It's that one. It's, it's definitely that one. Oh, it's definitely. The world is not cursed. It just... Yeah. It, Hollywood just fucking kills people. Oh, yeah, like, like <laughs> speaking, speaking as a comedian, like, I know a lot of... The, the, like, comedians, comedians even compared to other actors, like, tend to die weirdly young. Yeah, they they don't live very long, on the whole. Yeah, they're, they're a like, great career path we've both chosen. <laughs> they're like professional football players and golden retrievers. They just not, they're just not built to last. <laughs> they're not built to last. No, the problem with, like, being expected to churn out content at an inhuman pace is that the best way to do that is cocaine. And that doesn't end well. <laughs> yeah, no, give me a briefcase full of Adderall and I will have a brief but brilliant comedy career. Yeah. But brief. Yeah, this is not John Arbuckle. <laughs> this is... No. This is, no. This is Fatty. It's not. Fatty, well, Roscoe Arbuckle. Roscoe so, Conkling Ar Arbuckle, thank you very much. It is Roscoe Conkling Arbuckle, and there's a story behind why his name is Roscoe Conkling Arbuckle, and it's a bad story. Oh. Most of his life is bad, actually. Most of Roscoe Arbuckle's life was pretty much bad from the beginning. So Arbuckle was arguably one of the most talented artists of his generation. Even if you don't really know anything about silent film, and if you've never even seen a silent film, you probably still know who this guy is, which is pretty remarkable. Because there were a lot of silent film actors, and not very many of them had the kind of legacy that he did. And partly um, because we treated, like, that era of film was, like, very much treated as disposable. Oh yeah, we literally threw it into dumpsters. But Roscoe Arbuckle had far more talents than he's popularly remembered for. He was actually spent a great deal of his career as a singer, which obviously didn't translate into a silent film career, but he could do it. But his work was, at least in his lifetime, and even still to today, largely overshadowed by the fact that he was at the center of the very first major scandal in Hollywood history. Y you, If you know anything about Fatty Arbuckle at all, 
You might not be familiar with his work, you might never have seen one of his movies, but you probably know he was accused of raping and murdering a young actress in 1921. Although Arbuckle was ultimately acquitted on all criminal charges and actually received a handwritten apology letter from the jury, being put through criminal trials destroyed him both personally and professionally. His career never recovered. He died young at the age of 46, literally on the eve of making a comeback. So what happened to Roscoe Arbuckle? And, uh, as a side note, how much irrelevant information about vaudeville and silent film can Chanel fit into two podcast episodes? Oh, probably a lot. It's so much. You need to know all this stuff for this story to make any sense. Uh, it's my favorite thing. Context. <laughs> I love it. There's so much of it. Silent film is kind of gone, and there's a reason for that. Silent film and the film industry of the 1920s is a very different beast from the film industry today. I do want to make a note that throughout the episode, I will be referring to Arbuckle by his name, Roscoe Arbuckle, and not by the name Fatty, uh, because mostly because he hated it a lot. He hated it a lot. That was, that was more of a branding thing. Yeah, it wasn't. It was the name of a recurring character that he played on screen in the same way that Charlie Chaplin played a character called the Tramp. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't a stage name and it wasn't meant to be. Arbuckle also had a female version of Fatty called Mrs. Fatty in some films, but we're not going to touch that. That's that's a lot. <laughs> Early Hollywood was a different time. It was a different time. Um, there were very successful drag performers in early Hollywood, and it wasn't because they didn't allow women in movies. They just, they had a very different take on it. Uh, very much, tr- trans rights went backwards before they went forward. <laughs> cross-dressing was not viewed the same way as it was day-to-day cross-dressing. Way more controversial. Like, but actors cross-dressing? Not nearly. And there were drag performers in the early 1920s who cross-dressed, like, not as a bit. It wasn't to, mm-hmm. like, parody women they were just like, they just played female actors. That was, that was just a thing that they did and nobody really said anything about it. But if you're not, even if you're not familiar with silent film, you've seen pop culture references to the character of Fatty Arbuckle. He's kind of this like childlike bumbling hayseed character. He wears pants that are too short, suspenders, a bow tie, and a very small hat. And he usually has a finger in his mouth. You've seen it. I, I've seen like, that in cartoons. Yeah. A lot of cartoons kind of make reference to this character, but that's that's what it is. It's the Fatty Arbuckle character. A lot of comedians develop long-term recurring characters like this, especially decades ago. But even today, Sasha Baron Cohen has been playing different versions of Borat since the 90s, but Borat is not his stage name. The name Fatty kind of stuck, but Roscoe really didn't want it to. His own father had tormented him by mocking him for his weight and the children at school had bullied him by calling him Fatty. It was kind of a a jab at people when he made the character named Fatty. That was something he'd been called his whole life. But he hated being called Fatty off-screen, and he made it very well known that he didn't enjoy it. When somebody called him Fatty in a personal setting, or a fan called him Fatty, he would respond with, I've got a name, you know. (laughs) Um, Yeah, wasn't a big fan of it. Arbuckle's weight was a huge part of his image and probably a contributor to his success. It was something that his studios marketed pretty hard, and it did make him unique, but he adamantly refused to do cheap fat jokes. Like, he would not do gags like getting stuck in a chair. Trite. It's it's a cheap joke. If it's trite by the standards of the early silent <laughs> film era, it's fucking hack. <laughs> that is some hack shit. If it's hack shit in 1915, it's hack it's shit. Hack. Like, Shit. Mm-hmm. Like, oh. He once he once said in an interview, I refuse to try to make people laugh at my bulk. Personally, I cannot believe that a battleship is a bit funnier than a canoe, but some people do not feel that way about it. Which is an interesting way to frame it. 
And his weight, although it was also probably a contributor to his success, it was also a huge source of struggle for him. The early 1900s were not kind to larger people. Oh yeah, well we thought it was like a symbol of gluttony and vice. Like we still do. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and it was, it, there weren't a lot of fat people around. It was kind of just him as some sort of like sideshow act. Negative perceptions of fat people haunted him throughout his life. A lot of the media attention that came out from the scandal, a lot of the reason that this scandal was so aggressively pursued was because of his weight. He identified as a Roscoe. We gotta respect that. He did. He was, well, he was named Roscoe. <laughs> he identified as Roscoe. He identified <laughs> as a Roscoe. His father identified him as a Roscoe because his father was a dick. My gender is <laughs> Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> that's true for you. Um, that's... So Roscoe was born Roscoe Conkling Arbuckle on March 24th, 1887, and everything basically went straight downhill from there. Well, I mean, that's already a very unkind name to give a child. That's a burden. Roscoe was one of nine children born to Mary Gordon and William Arbuckle in the town of Smith Center, Kansas, and he weighed more than 13 pounds at birth. That's a wow. big fucking baby. That's a very large baby. That is a bowling ball. Yeah, for 1887, that's a big fucking baby. That is a large <laughs> child. That's a large child now. They would not let you carry a child that large to term anymore. That's too big a baby. At a certain point, they're worried about damaging you. <laughs> well, they should be. Um, He was such a gigantic baby that his father actually denied paternity of him. William Arbuckle's <laughs> reasoning is that he was too skinny to have fathered such a large baby, which is not how any of that shit fucking works. <laughs> He's huge. She must be a whore. <laughs> Basically, so to that end, William Arbuckle was so convinced that his newborn son convinced that this boy had to have been the product of an affair because he was too skinny to have fathered this fucking bowling ball of a child that he named the boy after New York Senator Roscoe Conkling, a notorious womanizer and philanderer that William Arbuckle <laughs> fucking loathed. So, <laughs> Spite naming your child after a man you hate? What the fuck? Yeah, his, he's not even a week old and his life is bad. This is not a good start to life. Jeez. <laughs> so when Roscoe was two, the family moved to California. And at age eight, Roscoe began a brief stint as a child actor, performing in stage productions put on by Frank Bacon's theater company. He was an obscure playwright at the time who would eventually achieve great success in the following decades. Um, and his, his theater company had literally just been, like, passing through town and suddenly needed a child actor and were like, you boy, come perform. Um, in, in blackface. In blackface. <laughs> I need a round yes. black child. You are the correct yeah. shape. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. It was a stage production. This was before film even existed. This is the, this is the late 1800s. Hold still, child. This is going to take a lot of shoe polish. <laughs> He did, and he performed barefoot, so they had to blacken his feet, too. It was, yeah. Oh, good. It was a different time. Um, he was stained. He was eight. He didn't know. <laughs> I mean, that's not on him. No, not, no, not an eight. It's not. Um, Can you imagine if you're just, like, a mother today, like, some strange street performers stole your child and put him in blackface? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, his his mother was very supportive of her child's creative ambitions. He actually acted off and on from the ages of 8 until 11 in uh, in local stage productions. His father was less supportive and was a bit of an asshole. Roscoe was always a husky child. His father tormented him about his weight his whole life, referring to him as Fatty. The nickname originated with his own dad. 
But as as you mentioned, giving birth to a 13-pound baby is risky even in the modern era. It's really not yeah. something you'd want to attempt in the year 1887. I was a 10-pound baby at birth in the 90s, and my mother and I both nearly died. Like, it was not great. It is a miracle of modern medicine that I'm making this podcast today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, isn't that one of those fascinating things? Like, if, if, if medicine hadn't advanced the way it is, you and I probably would not have made it past infancy. No, I was I was an emergency C-section 72 hours into labor. That was not oh, good. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, you could have killed Macbeth, though, so that's... That's true. I could have killed Macbeth. I, I take... You are no man of woman born. No, I was from my mother untimely ripped. Wow, that's, that lives in my head <laughs> rent-free. <laughs> I have more of Macbeth memorized than I thought. <laughs> that is the line isn't it yeah no cool yeah. <laughs> thank, thank you high school english class <laughs> yeah no roscoe was 13 pounds and his birth was so medically and physically traumatic for mary his mother that she never really fully recovered from it complications from the birth permanently weakened her and developed into chronic health issues that contributed to her death when roscoe was just 11 years old by the time Roscoe's mother died, his father had already abandoned the family and taken off to Northern California to run a hotel. With no other options, 11-year-old Roscoe headed north to see if his father would take him in. When he arrived at the hotel, however, he learned that his father had already sold the place and left town without leaving a forwarding address. So Roscoe, <laughs> this is all bad. I told you, his life was not good. It was. This it is was, hilariously tragic. It's very oh my tragic. Gosh. It's it's a lot. Apparently, it's so it's so sad. It's kind of funny. <laughs> it's there's no other response. How do you how do you even process this? His uh, life gets better. Instantly fucked up. <laughs> things get better for a while. Not always, but things do briefly get better. But he was so bummed out about being a homeless eleven year old orphan that he sat down on the front steps of the hotel and cried, until some random locals took him in, offering to let him earn his keep as an errand boy at the hotel. Come with so, us, you fat child. Do not be sad, for we have labor for you. <laughs> yes, a whole, a wholesome eighteen nineties childhood. Yeah, it's almost charitable for the time, I guess. So, at the ripe old age of eleven, Roscoe began working as an errand boy in various hotels and theaters to support himself. Not like today's lazy youth. <laughs> not even getting jobs in elementary school, <laughs> having two <laughs> parents for the most part. Yeah, it's spoiled. Spoiled. Jeez, back in my day, we cried at a hotel until we became child labor. Wonderful. You're not even a bellhop, and yet you are eight. <laughs> Explain yourself. You're sucking at the teat of your mother and the state. <laughs> okay, Jessica. This is why you don't have a career in politics. <laughs> yet. Oh, that and my numerous, numerous sex scandals. That's, yeah, mostly those. The biggest sex scandal is just, like, which? The sex? Mm. <laughs> but working at the hotel was actually how Roscoe got his first kind of break into the entertainment industry. Um, he liked to sing as he worked, and as I mentioned, as a silent film star, he was obviously not known for his voice, but he was an incredibly gifted singer. Later in his career, upon hearing Roscoe sing, the famous operatic tenor Enrico Caruso encouraged him to pursue opera professionally telling him, give up this nonsense you do for a living. With training, you could become the second greatest singer in the world. After him 
After himself, obviously. <laughs> obviously, <laughs> Which of course. Which is such a wonderful compliment to give somebody. You could become almost as good as me. <laughs> You'd be second best. <laughs> second of greatest. Of course. The confidence in that statement. <laughs> you could have the greatness that is being my understudy. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you crying? <laughs> <laughs> he was an adult at this point. He was not told this as a child. <laughs> Can you imagine? Give up this nonsense you do for a living and it's being an 11-year-old urchin. <laughs> A little bellhop, like, you're wasting your life, you fool. You're nearly middle age. <laughs> okay, people did live a little On the verge that. of 14 and still be at a bellhop. <laughs> Pathetic. Wasting your golden years. This is why we don't let Jessica in the room with children. <laughs> I've been allowed in room. I have nieces. I have nephews. I've been asked to babysit. Oh, no. Be afraid. I've influenced I... young lives. <laughs> I am a mandated reporter. You're making me nervous. <laughs> <laughs> but while working as an errand boy and singing on the job, Roscoe was overheard by a professional singer at the hotel who invited him to come and perform in a talent show, which Roscoe agreed to. So the talent show was like a turn-of-the-century version of America's Got Talent, which meant whenever somebody didn't perform well... They would be yoinked off the stage by a shepherd's crook, which is a staff with, like, a big wooden hook at the end. Which used to be a thing that people would physically do. Yeah, you've seen this gag if you grew up in the 90s. I don't know what kids watch today. But, uh, many children's cartoons still use this joke, but it does- it comes from vaudeville. It's very anachronistic. Like, yeah, it's one of those old. things that's, like, just been completely <laughs> removed from context. <laughs> I mean, I don't think your average kid would know what the stick is. It's a shepherd's crook. It's for herding sheep in the 1800s. It's not even a thing that exists anymore. Looney Tunes love this gag. Kind of like how like, we miss on the metaphor of, like, death's scythe. It's an agricultural tool. Yeah. <laughs> it's about no, but... him reaping souls. Yeah, like, like, like wheat. Except people. Except it's grandpa. Um, <laughs> you know. It's a metaphor. So the modern update, because, like, people try, keep trying to update the Grim Reaper with, like, a skateboard and shit, but I think you should just have, like, a combine harvester. <laughs> Efficiency. There's more people than there used to be. Yeah. <laughs> He's got to keep up with the times. There's so many dead people. Imagine you're, like, weeping over your dead grandfather and the fucking <laughs> Grim Reaper combine harvesters him. I'm just imagining, like, the scene from The Sims where the, where the Grim Reaper shows up. Yeah, he just, like, slowly turns, comes back, misses your grandpa barely. There's a buzz another big sweep. go. <laughs> <laughs> but this used to be a thing that people physically did. This isn't just, like, a joke from cartoons. When people were performing poorly, they would pull you off the stage with a shepherd's crook. They would hook you like a misbehaving alligator in a garbage can. Yeah, they would just yoink you. It had to hurt. Those are heavy. <laughs> well, you get physically so, dragged off. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, sometimes it was done for, like, comic effect. People knew it was coming. It was a staple of vaudeville comedy in the early 1900s, but it, it had real origin. So when Roscoe got up to sing and dance, he initially started bombing. But when he saw the shepherd's crook coming toward him to yank him off the stage, he panicked, leapt off the stage, and did a somersault into the orchestra pit. And the audience <laughs> was such a huge fan of this stunt that he ended up winning the talent show. Making his first baby step into a career in show business. It would be funny. It would hurt like fuck. Orchestra pits are deep. A lot of uh, silent film actors did their own stunts, and a lot of them got very badly injured. It was 
<laughs> it was a time before the Screen Actors Guild. They could make you do anything. Yeah, they didn't have a union. <laughs> <laughs> God, no. If you die, you die. Also, a lot of the things that happened between the 1920s and the 1960s, why films sucked in those years, is all Roscoe's fault. So at some point during Roscoe's teen years, his father returned to town to claim his abandoned son, and Roscoe moved in with his father and stepmother, and it was a bad time. His father was a drunken, abusive nightmare man who liked to get liquored up and terrorize the family. His stepmother would later recall that she had to rescue him from some of the worst of the beatings. She once recalled having to save Roscoe while his father was choking him out and simultaneously slamming his head into a tree. Oh. So, is this, are childhood. you sure that this is a silent film actor and not a serial killer? Like, this is a <laughs> hell of a backstory. You'd expect this to be, like, some kind of, like, start to darkness rather than just, like, and then he used to put on clown makeup and pretend to be a woman. Ooh. I know. that we've, we've literally covered serial killers with bad childhoods who didn't quite have this nightmare. Oh, this is, this is <laughs> atrocious. Those are the two options. If you've got a bad childhood, kids, you can become yeah. a serial killer or a comedian. They're both bad options. <laughs> But that's that's kind of what drove Roscoe into performing. He wanted out the fuck of that house. Roscoe continued to perform through his teen years as a singer in illustrated song acts in local vaudeville houses. This was a popular type of performance at the time. This was this was decades before the music video, where a musical act would perform a popular song as a slideshow was played. And I'm fucking aging myself terribly here, but there was a YouTuber called Nice Peter who built a huge following doing something like this about ten years ago before he became popular for epic rap battles of history. Ah. What a blast from the past that is. When was the last time you thought about Nice Peter? Like a decade ago. Wow. <laughs> I mean, this is the first I time I've known his name, but I am familiar with his work. But yeah, so he used to be, he started out actually as a singer, where he would sing and people would do these slideshows and it was, it was popular. There wasn't a lot to do at the time. <laughs> this is basically almost as good as bear baiting. <laughs> oh god, yeah. And sometimes you can't find a fresh bear. <laughs> I mean, you can see just about anything in vaudeville. You can't really see a whole lot of mad men bear baiting. That was definitely not allowed. <laughs> you, you couldn't bear bait, I hope, in the 1910s. Maybe well, you I could. mean, not in a theater. Know. You know, that's not the appropriate venue. Bears are discouraged. <laughs> this is this is bear baiting was a form of medieval entertainment where you would literally just make a bear angry. That's I think basically it's fairly what it obvious what it means. <laughs> I don't know. You're maybe, just contextualizing that at some, one point people did actually do it. No, they did. This was like a popular form of medieval Yeah, like you do it in front just... of like the king. Can you imagine you if literally... Queen Elizabeth did that today? <laughs> like, just had somebody bring a grizzly bear in a fucking jubilee. <laughs> <laughs> it's why you, it's where the phrase poke the bear comes from. For those of you who are not familiar with the term or what vaudeville is, because I quizzed my own mother and she was like, that's the comedy show. Vaudeville was not comedy shows. That's no. not what that was. It was associated with comedy, especially later, but that's mostly just due to, like, which tropes survive from the era. Oh, you don't get to make fun of my obscure knowledge of <laughs> of history. You know all of this shit yourself. My mom knows a lot about vaudeville! <laughs> my mom was super into Lots vaudeville. People... She referenced it all the time. I grew up with it. I'm a live comedian. I know a lot about vaudeville. We're gonna nerd out about vaudeville together. So, vaudeville was a style of entertainment that originated in France. I'm just outing myself to you as, like, a fellow traveler. <laughs> well, it started out in France, but it really came into its own in America, exploding in popularity in the first decades of the 20th century. We're talking, like, between 1900 and, like, 1920. It fizzled out over time. 
So An American Vaudeville Performance was a variety show that featured a wide array of completely unrelated acts. So there would be musicians, dancers, jugglers, strongmen, trained animal acts, acrobats, clowns, magicians, ventriloquists, pretty much anything. And between acts, they were usually interspersed with comedy sketches, one-act plays, or minstrel shows. Yes. That kind of minstrel show. <laughs> the very minstrel show of legend. The blackface kind. And by legend, I mean blackface. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, these shows actually had very strict standards for what, like, they were supposed to be family-friendly. But minstrel it up, that was fine. Um, <laughs> Go for There it. were actually black minstrel performers, which is a whole thing we don't have time to get into. Black vaudeville is fascinating. It would be an episode yes. unto itself. But they didn't, they, they had less interesting murders. But a vaudeville show was kind of campy, it was sort of flashy, and it was meant to have the widest mass market appeal possible. It was, it was not lowbrow or highbrow entertainment, it was kind of both. And they toured not only the country, they toured the world. So it had to be mm. things that were entertaining to the broadest possible audience. Yeah, so like a lot of slapstick, a lot of nonverbal stuff. Yeah, the jokes were largely not language-based, because you would often tour, like, Asia or Europe. You you had to make it so you didn't have to change up your act very much. There was a, It was a lot of, like, Larry, Curly, and Moe, the Three Stooges, began as a vaudeville act, and it was a lot of that. It was a lot of slapping each other. Fish, optional, but preferred. The first thing people think of when they think vaudeville is actually usually slapstick comedy. This is, like, slip-on-a-banana humor. This is not... Eriodite political commentary humor. This is not Bill Burr. This is not George Carlin. <laughs> no. Is, no. It's not Bo Burnham. It's this is a very broad palette. Cartoons like the Looney Tunes borrowed really heavily from vaudeville humor. You've seen a lot of the popular gags from vaudeville if you grew up watching children's cartoons in the 90s. Yeah, any Looney Tunes at all, you know this. You know all Even the if tropes. You've never seen it. And uh, a lot of a lot of Looney Tunes actually parodied famous performers from this era. There's a lot of direct references to a lot of actors and performers who who were part of all this. You just you didn't you wouldn't recognize it if you're a kid born in the '90s watching this sick at home in 2003. But vaudeville shows were family friendly to a fault, at least in the beginning, and they were intended as polite, inoffensive entertainment that was meant for the whole family. You could bring your kids to a vaudeville show. You were supposed to. They became more and more risque as time went on. As audiences started to wane, they relied more and more heavily on female performers in skimpy costumes, and they began borrowing very extensively from burlesque shows. But things like blasphemy and cursing were strictly forbidden. You could not bend the rules on that one. Yeah, like, you can have blackface, but you better not disgrace the Lord's name. <laughs> No, in one of the biggest vaudeville circuits in the country at the time, using the term son of a gun or hell on stage would get you permanently blacklisted, which would be absolutely disastrous for your career. And life as a vaudeville performer meant a life mostly spent on tour. A vaudeville tour could stretch from a few weeks to as long as two years at a time. So you, you could perform in local houses, but the real goal was to join a large tour and to tour for a while. That was where you made your money. And that was the beauty of vaudeville life. You really didn't need to come up with a lot of new material because you performed to live audiences all over the country and it could take years for you to exhaust a comedy sketch. Which, fucking god, I wish. <laughs> That's still how a lot of live acts behave to this day. And it is, it is not to the benefit because like, we don't <laughs> tour as much anymore because no one owns a car. 
<laughs> like I, I had friends who were just like, they're like, oh, you want to come to my comedy show? And they'd be like, yeah, but like, is that one girl who always talks about her butthole going to be there? And I'm like, of course she's going to be there. And like, is she going to talk about her butthole again? I'm like, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> she's got one joke. <laughs> yeah. Like, I've been doing this for four years now. You know how it is. She talks about her butthole. <laughs> it, it worked a lot better when you were in a different city every night. Um, but a lot of, like, very recognizable names, musicians, Broadway stars, silent film stars got their start as vaudeville performers. So Judy Garland, Bob Hope, Abbott and Costello, Fred Astaire, Pearl Bailey, Charlie Chaplin, Cab Calloway, dozens of people. The early film area really comes out of vaudeville. A lot of music, like the musicians come out of vaudeville. A lot of circus performers come out of vaudeville and Broadway. All of like entertainment basically came off the vaudeville circuit for a while. And a lot of the tropes and the jokes and the staples of vaudeville made it into movies, they're still recognizable today. The influence some of these people had is still around. But yeah, so before he ever became a powerhouse of silent film, which is what he's really known for, Roscoe Arbuckle was one of the people who was most successful on the vaudeville circuit. Um, but it started out because he wanted to go on tour and get away from his drunk asshole dad. So, in 1904, a young Roscoe Arbuckle was invited by Sid Grauman to come and join his newly opened Vaudeville Theater, the unique theater in San Francisco, as a singer. And if you're a huge movie nerd, the name Sid Grauman should mean something to you. He was one of the original founders of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, which is the organization that hands out Academy Awards, and he is the namesake and creator of Grauman's Chinese Theater on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, uh, which is still there. I don't think the unique theater is anymore. Roscoe then left the Unique Theater to join the Pantages Theater Group, which toured a circuit on the west coast of the U.S. and Canada. In 1906, he performed with Leon Errol's vaudeville troupe at the famous Orpheum Theater in Portland, Oregon. Leon Errol was an extremely successful comedian of the day and performer of the era who became a mentor to Roscoe. So after a couple of years of this, Roscoe became the main act, and he spent a lot of time touring the vaudeville circuit with Leon Errol. In 1908, he married fellow performer, comedian, and future silent film star Araminta Estelle Durfee, who went by the name Minta Durfee. And Whoa. I know, what a name. <laughs> oh, that one did not age well. I mean, it sounded weird, I think, even at the time. No, something you're going to notice throughout this whole episode that blew my mind is how many of the names in this episode are extinct. Like, how many names, both both first names and surnames from the 1920s, are just not around anymore? When was the last time? Them. Because I people just stopped. Who? When have you ever met someone named Araminta? What the fuck is that? <laughs> it feels like it feels like you you know you just forgot to name your child and you got surprised by the census taker. <laughs> Araminta. And you just had to make something up on the spot. <laughs> no, it's true. And like these are people's legal names. Like you'd expect there to be wild stage names among performers, but these are people's. Honest to God, fucking legal names. Names you have not not graced this earth in many decades. Um, even Roscoe. When was the last time you met a Roscoe? Never. I, I, I <laughs> maybe a dog. Yeah, right? Uh, it's Good name for a dog. <laughs> Charlie's still around, but yeah, no, not 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 Araminta. That one that one has gone away. So Roscoe marries Minta Durfee, who is a fellow actress. And she would star alongside Roscoe Arbuckle in several of his early comedy films, although she's probably best known for playing a lead role opposite Charlie Chaplin in the 1914 comedy film Cruel, Cruel Love. 
And like everybody, you're gonna notice everybody involved in entertainment at this point in human history knows each other. They're all buds. There's like, oh yeah, it's not a big world. It's not a big world. There's like four dozen people who exist at this point in human history, and they're all friends. They all know each other. So Charlie Chaplin and Roscoe Arbuckle were very close. Although Charlie Chaplin is British, he spent most of his career in the U.S. until they kicked him out. Um, <laughs> yeah, they, you can't see the accent. They let him back in eventually. Uh, but yeah, no, he's he's British. Something I think that's... He he spent most of his career in the U.S. until they uh, canceled his visa while he was out of the country because they thought he was a communist. Uh, <laughs> you know? Was it that thing where like he's just like, we can all get along? The end of the dictator? Yeah, that was part of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that like, he was... How dare you suggest that we should try to make, make amends with the rest of the world? Charlie, yeah, Charlie Chaplin was was an anti-war pacifist, and they uh, labeled him a communist. It was actually George Orwell who sold him out to the government as a communist, because again, there's Ooh. four dozen people on Earth at this point in human history, and they all know each other. George. <laughs> George oh, Orwell gosh. handed over a list of writers he thought were communists to the government, and uh, yeah, Charlie Chaplin was one of them. That is hypocritical, They sir. They canceled his, his visa while he was out of the country. Fun fact, um, but decades before any of that happened, he was buddies with... Roscoe Arbuckle, acting with his wife, because there's three people on Earth. Um, Minta's best friend was an actress named Mabel Normand. She was a frequent collaborator of Roscoe and Charlie Chaplin, and she was considered Arbuckle's main leading lady. She ended up starring in 17 films with Arbuckle and 12 films with Charlie Chaplin, and she wrote and or co-wrote and directed many of the films she appeared in with Chaplin. Interestingly enough, Mabel Normand's career was also derailed by a scandal in which she was tried and acquitted for murder. Not, huh. not the same murder. I thought you were going to tell me that she was accused of forcing herself on a woman, so I don't know. No, no. This is <laughs> the murder part. Just the murder part. Not the same murder as Roscoe Arbuckle. Different murder. There was a lot of murder to go around. Why? <laughs> I don't know. Just, just murdering each in other. The something in the water? <laughs> People just died back then, and they were like, I don't know, murder, I guess? Probably. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> Probably violence. <laughs> murder or cholera. Pick a, pick a fucking, pick a draw straws. Yeah, pretty much. So, Minta and Roscoe were said to be something of an odd couple, which is funny. Uh, she was tiny even by early 1900 standards, and he was 5'10 and weighed somewhere between 250 and 300 pounds for most of his adult life, which absolutely nobody would fucking blink at today. But at the time, it was outrageous. <laughs> I know, like, eight people matching that description pers as personal friends. <laughs> yeah, no, like, there's there's so much ado made about how fat he is and how gigantic he is. And the dude is, like, I don't know, 270 pounds? Like, he's... Well, that's the thing. is like, when, you, when we're talking about, like, how many, like, modern film stars look just like him. They're like, yeah, they're not even, like, notably fat, John Candy. <laughs> no, 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 no. He's, he's not really notably fat by today's standards. It's like if your people are like, is he fat? fat you'd be like yeah, yeah sure <laughs> sure he's like he's overweight but like they made so much ado about like how enormous he was and how fat he is and it's like eh, he's kind of a big guy he's a big dude um every biography though you'll ever read on roscoe arbuckle makes some mention of how strange him and his wife look together and i promise you that if you google oh, yeah. a picture of the two like of them it's a dr seuss book no, I know. They're like, she's so tiny. He's enormous. They look weird together. Just Google them. There's pictures right. of them together. They are a bog standard looking couple. It's so anticlimactic. There's so many let biographies look, that go on and on about like, they look so odd together. They do not. They look like a bog standard couple hosting a barbecue in the suburbs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she's not that tiny. 
No, she's not. And he's not that large. They're just kind of people. (laughs) She's just a a lady. She's like a little bit shorter than him. And like, like I, (laughs) what? I don't know. Yeah, I know. They're like regular looking people. They're just, just a bog standard couple. They also had a pet dog named Luke who became famous. Luke appeared in many of their films. After his wedding to Minta, Roscoe joined the Morosco Burbank Stock Company, which was another vaudeville troupe, and left the United States to tour China and Japan, returning not until early 1909. So Roscoe Arbuckle would begin his silent film career when he returned to the United States in the summer of 1909, when he began acting in films for the Selig Poliscope Company. The Selig Poliscope Company, founded in 1896, was one of America's oldest and first film companies, and it was the first film company to ever set up a permanent studio in Southern California. The Poliscope Company is actually the reason that the film industry is based in L.A. today. They decided that the climate and geography in Southern California were ideal for filming. But best of all, California, particularly Southern California, was far away from the reach of New York City's Thomas Edison, the light bulb one, that guy. Notorious dickhead Thomas Edison. <laughs> Notorious dickhead. Um, he was attempting to sue the Selig Poliscope Company out of existence for patent violation. Oh, was he? Because Edison felt that he owned the concept of pointing a film camera at something and recording it. Like, he felt that that was his. Oh, boy. No. He wasn't even the first person to do that. That was invented by the French. No, I know. All, all the oldest films are... are... Like, don't, doesn't the patent office require things to be non-obvious? <laughs> they do, but, you know, it was, it's, it's the early 1900s, so God knows what they thought was obvious. But just to make it difficult for him to sue them or monitor what they were doing, they basically went as far away from him as possible to Southern California. We shall go to California to escape him. Yeah, it was like, back in the day, it took like a fucking month to cross the country. You know, it was inconvenient. Just gonna pack up an entire industry to escape Thomas Edison. He was all based out of New York. They did. They literally did. It's the reason why. If you've ever wondered why America's two major hubs of art and theater are on complete fucking opposite sides of the continental United States, that is the point. And you can thank Thomas Edison for it. He is why. (laughs) Specifically how much of a dick he was. He was a tool. He was a tool. He was a tool to everybody. You learn in school that he was like this amazing inventor. And then in college, at some point, they take you aside and they're like, he bought everything he ever claimed as an invention. The man didn't invent things as much as he purchased patents from other people. Yeah, and he actively undermined all of his competition who were smarter, more clever, and more innovative than him. Yeah, he's a, he's a big part of the reason that we're only just now having this revival of like recognition for Nikola Tesla. He made the man's life hell. Nikola Tesla wanted to build a power grid that would have been free to all Americans. And it was Thomas Edison who stopped him from doing it. Communist! Communist. <laughs> Thomas Edison also publicly electrocuted, was a, an elephant? Yeah, yeah, an elephant. He, he fucking yeah. electrocuted it as propaganda against <laughs> people who wanted alternating current, which was a much more efficient method than he used. Yeah, we all have, we all have alternating current in our homes today. It was a whole thing. He's like, it's dangerous! Look at me! Fry living creature! (laughs) (laughs) Which you can also do with direct current. I don't know what the point of that was. If you have put enough electricity through it, it'll kill pretty much anything. Pretty much. Thomas Edison was an asshole. That's a a big lesson from history. So the Selig Poliscope Company would actually end up ceasing all film operations in 1918 and convert into a zoo, which is an interesting pivot. 
from a business perspective. It's quite a choice. Um, The company had bought so many performance animals over the years for their productions, they eventually decided it made more fiscal sense to just become a zoo, so they did. (laughs) I don't know. The whole thing's very weird. It's wild. Yeah, they rented out animals to other film companies, but they stopped making films after that. We're almost a zoo already! I know. What a weird decision that is. What... What I would give to sit in on the business meeting where they made that choice. <laughs> They're like, oh, maybe we should just be a zoo! <laughs> Fuck these movies, we're a zoo now, bitches. Like, what is that? And they, they would rent out the animals, like, they would rent animals to other production companies, but it's still a weird choice. But in 1909, they were still making films, baby. So that is that was the first studio, because back in the day, as an actor, you couldn't just go willy-nilly making movies. No. It's not how that worked. You belonged to a particular studio. You were on contract with them, and you would pump out movies for them. You're an employee for this company. If I wanted to make a movie today, and this is an enormous oversimplification, I would get a script somehow, or I would get the rights to adapt an existing yeah. script. Get some funding. I would go around and I would find funding. I'd be like, hey, me, person who wants to make a film, I want to make this movie. These are my reasons I think it will be successful. If I know any big actors, I might make them promise to star in it so people will give me money. But I basically become the person who's making the movie. I run around, I find somebody to fund it, I make the movie with the funding. They give me money, I buy whatever sets, props, I hire actors, I make the movie. And then all the investors get their money back, plus more money. That's how films work. Back in the day, though, you would have a production company and they owned everything. All the sets, props, cameras... And actors, and then they would just be like, cool, go make movies. You have you on a two-year contract, make us some films. Movies, now. That's how it worked in the day. Movie now. And they would do it in, like, the course of, like, a couple weeks. Yeah, no, no, it was not, it it was a very different thing. The first company he was ever signed to was Selig Poliscope Company, and his first ever film was called Ben's Kid, a production that came out in July of 1909. So Ben's Kid was a short comedy western, which was something that Selig Poliscope Company sort of specialized in. Southern California looks like western movies, so that's what they did. Like, we got cactuses. They don't technically grow where this is set, but we have cactuses. It's like, it's like, it's like what they do in movies today, just make it yellow, it's Mexico. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) They really do. So Roscoe played a minor character called Fatty Carter, and although the movie is, is, doesn't exist anymore... A plot synopsis of the movie was published in a contemporary newspaper, so we know what the film was about. And before I summarize it for you, I absolutely fucking promise you that this was marketed as a comedy. Ben's Kid was a movie about an abusive, wife-beating monster named Buck, who decides to leave town with his wife Molly after he loses a fight. Buck forbids Molly from taking their infant daughter with them and forces her to abandon the baby in their home. What? Yeah. The townsfolk then find the baby and they decide to raffle her off to a random townsperson and a bachelor named Ben wins the baby. He then realizes that he doesn't know how to take care of a baby, so Roscoe Arbuckle's character steps in to try to calm the infant down by performing an Indian war dance, but it doesn't work. Molly then escapes her abusive husband on horseback in the middle of the night and tries to return to town to take the baby back, but Buck chases after her, trying to kill her for leaving him. When she arrives in town, Buck then attempts to shoot her to death in front of their infant child, 
but Ben saves her, and Buck is chased down and hanged by the townsfolk. Ben and Molly then get married and live happily ever after with the baby. Did they have any relationship before that, though? No. They did not interact at all. They're just like, you took care of my baby? Let's bone. It's like an 18-minute movie, so they didn't have time for that. I mean, yeah. I mean, they didn't have a lot of time for exposition. Or a lot of dialogue, for that matter. No, there's... I just love any movie that ends with a white lynching. I know. There's like... Don't take that out of context. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm, that's gonna be my ringtone. It's just Jessica. There's a lot of movie that ends with a white lynching. <laughs> Just give me your 2022. I'm gonna make like a staples easy button that says that. Just keep it on my desk. Uh, those commercials would have been different. <laughs> but yeah, you know, standards for comedy have changed. Um, it doesn't appear that any copies of this film actually survived, so that synopsis is all we've got. We can only assume it's a wild it was synopsis. spectacular. Why would you even have that as a side character? <laughs> we gotta get the, the Indian war dance. You know how people are. You know you gotta have a romantic subplot. You gotta have your Indian war dance. You gotta have your white lynching. <laughs> Those are all necessary. Vital um, elements of the art. And tale as old as time. <laughs> so, more unwanted film history for you. Most films of the silent era are now lost films, which means there's currently no known copies of the film in any archive or private collection. Every now and then, somebody, like, finds an old film in a janitor's closet somewhere. We literally have found films in, like, random Tons. closets. Oh, yeah, because, like, they, they were just big and bulky and you had to put them somewhere. And, like, fuck. Here, I guess. And most, and most of the ones that survived were in isolated or weird places. Uh, <laughs> you just explained the whole celluloid thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, we will. We'll get into why, why you can't store a cellulite film for long. But the numbers on film loss are kind of staggering. By one estimate, more than 90% of all films made before the year 1929 are lost, and around 75% of all the silent films ever made are lost today. So only 14% of silent films ever made by major studios have survived. It's like a hundred years- like, you wouldn't think we just wouldn't have shit from a hundred years ago. Like, these are literally movies! <laughs> like, they were- we know they recorded it! And mass no, distributed I'm, it, too! I mean, imagine if we lost 90% of all the books that ever came out in the 20th century. Like, it's- it's an insane amount of anything to lose. Yeah, it's like you just can't find the Da Vinci Code. Just an ex was it the most popular like book at the time? Yeah, but like then all the copies were stored in one lo one locker, and they all just caught fire. <laughs> like, what? Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. What do you mean? There used to be thousands of copies of this. <laughs> yeah, but only only fourteen percent of the silent films ever made by the major studios have survived in their original format. The rest have only survived as foreign versions or lower quality reproductions. And the foreign versions are tricky. You can translate them, but the the title cards were built into the film. It's not as easy as just swapping out English title cards. You've got to change the negatives. Around half of American sound films made between 1927 and 1950 have also been lost. Like, this is a lot of movies. And a lot of the surviving films are considered partially lost films which means that some footage has survived, but the full movie has been lost. And some partially lost films, like the wildly successful 1917 Cleopatra starring Theda Bara, another name you'll never see again, are almost entirely gone, with only a few frames or seconds of footage surviving. 
Only 20 seconds of Cleopatra survived, despite it being one of the most successful films of the year, starring one of the biggest stars of the era. Like, it wasn't just that this was, like, indie shit that people were losing in basements. Like, this, this is mainstream was culture. big blockbuster stuff. It's mainstream stuff, and it's just gone. We have a good sense of what films existed, because we still have promotional materials for them, including production stills. So studios would have a photographer mm. on set with a still camera who would snap pictures as they filmed, and they would use these pictures in promotional materials. So all we have left of some film titles, of some of the major films of the day, are a handful of the title cards and a handful of production stills. So we can kind of piece together approximately like what they were and that they existed, but pff, yeah. movie's gone. gone. Yeah, so how did we lose all this history? Fire and garbage. The two roots that most of them took out of existence. Well, that's that's the thing about, like, most, most histories. It's like, <laughs> yeah, really, we know tons about some people and just nothing about others. It's because, like, people used to live in places that were flammable, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of history is very, very flammable. That's the, the worst um, thing. It, like, erodes, it, like, catches fire. We just need to, like, cover it in flame retardants like it's a couch from the 80s. Or somebody was like, ha, we'll never look at this again, and just threw it in the garbage. Yeah. Oh, all the time. Just... All the time. All the time. We would never need this. <laughs> Trash. Three points. I mean, we're seeing it now. There's this, like, huge resurgence in, in demand for VHS copies of Disney movies. Oh, and, yeah. like, they those got yard sale. Garbage. Like, decades ago. <laughs> Those were garbage, and now people are like, oh my god, these are priceless artifacts of the 90s. <laughs> we're like, those those went the way of the yard sale in, like, 2003. We got a DVD player, and we never yeah. looked back, baby. We're, we're like, we... That's a wrap. <laughs> it's, it's, it was kind of the same for a lot of silent film. So movies of the era were not, like, these years-long, high-budget productions they are today. Studios at the time would fucking pump them out. They put out a lot of movies. A short film called a one-reeler, because it took up one reel of film, would run about 10 to 12 minutes depending on how fast you crank the reel. These are, these are mm. cranked by hand in the early days. That's actually why early films were silent. We had the technology to record sound, and we had the but technology to record video. Exactly, mm. we couldn't make them play at the same speed, because you've got some poor bastard manually cranking the movie. Either he has to be ambidextrous and just, like, the world's greatest masturbator, <laughs> or you have to get two people to crank at the exact same pace. It was too much, and you know how infuriating it is to watch a movie that the sound is off? Like, sl even slightly. Even slightly off. <laughs> yeah, they didn't have the technology to sync the two. They only figured that out in the late 1920s, um, at which point they made talking films. Talkies, as we call them now. <laughs> They also had, like, more automated reel cranks. I don't know how to... I don't know what piece of technology that is, but it would it would be by machine. But in the in the early days of silent film, it would go by hand. And some movies would actually come with instructions for how you were supposed to crank the reel faster or slower at certain parts of the movie. So some of them oh, made it into no. a feature. <laughs> oh, no. They did what they could. <laughs> they were trying. A feature-length film generally meant a movie that was made up of around of usually four reels. There were longer ones, but 40 minutes was good. <laughs> yeah, that's enough. That's basically Lord of the Rings back in the day. There were movies that had the 90-minute runtimes, or, or at least would go over an hour. 
And there were a handful of studios that were absolutely making, like, high-budget productions that took a long time to film and had very long run times. Like, the 1927 German film Metropolis took 310 days to film. It's 147 minutes long, and it's the weirdest fucking thing you'll ever see in your life. It's German political sci-fi from 1927. Oh my gosh. Use your own imagination. There's tits, but they're threatening. It's weird. It's a wild movie. <laughs> You'll never be so goddamn uncomfortable in your whole life. But most studios were not making two-hour-long German philosophical sci-fi movies. Most films were making, like, one real low-budget comedies. And they were, like, cranking these things out every couple of days to keep the lights on. It was not unusual for actors at the time to have, like, hundreds of film credits to their names. Oh, yeah. Like, these these were considered very disposable. Like, it, it, it's basically the same production schedule as South Park. <laughs> like, <laughs> just shit it out as fast as possible to be topical. <laughs> like, they were, like, newspaper cartoons. Like, funnies. They were not meant to be, like, lasting pieces of art. It was like, haha, this is a funny ten-minute clip, and then I move on with my life. So Arbuckle's leading lady, Mabel Normand, appeared in 188 films from 1911 to 1915 alone. That's not her full career total. That's just four years of her career. She's in 144 movies. And a lot of the actors were making the films up themselves. Like, they would be like, ha, it would be really funny if I did this, and that would be a movie. The audiences didn't like to read a lot of title cards. It was very visual humor. And very slapstick. You had to be able to understand what the plot without, like, almost any, like, language. Because the title cards didn't work the way that people seemed to think they did. It wouldn't be like an actor would mouth something and then you'd get a title card saying what they had just mouthed and we'd go back and forth that way. Um, some of them were, but mostly no. You'd get very few title cards. They don't give you a ton of context. Like, the actor will go up to a woman, he'll obviously be trying to hit on him, she'll throw something in his face. That's the scene. You don't get any dialogue. It's the kind of exaggerated clown acting that you get from a medium where, like, it needs to be immediate obvious from body language alone what you're doing. A lot of the comedies were very physical. You really didn't need the dialogue. They weren't, they weren't making, like, snappy jokes in the title cards so much as they were throwing pies at each other. Not to say that they weren't talented comedians. A lot of this stuff is genuinely funny. These were quick productions. Arbuckle acted in well over 150 films during his career, although only 56 of them survived to this day. Nobody really saw any replay value in movies once they'd run their course in theaters. There was, like, such a constant stream of new content coming out. A lot of the movies were very topical, and the studios felt that audiences moved on quickly. So once the film had had its run... That was kind of it. They didn't really anticipate ever needing it again. You couldn't watch them at home. Most people just didn't have a projector. You'd go to like a feature and you'd watch like seven of these bitches and then you'd go home. And you never saw it again. There would be something new in theaters three days later. A 35mm film reel is also like physically very large. These are these are big. Um, you can you can make artsy coffee tables out of them. If you if you hit up Etsy, you can definitely find like end tables and coffee tables made out of old 35mm film reels. They're they're huge. So theaters and studios tended to junk films after the theatrical run had concluded because they didn't have space for these things. Oh, because they're huge and you're making like eight a week. A copy of each film had to be sent into the Library of Congress to register copyright. I hate to think of the postage. But at the time, the Library of Congress had no obligation to hold on to them. Send a boy and a mule. <laughs> Pretty much. 
But the Library of Congress valued their storage space. They just threw a lot of these old movies out. Garbage! <laughs> they had no room. Today, it's a digital file. It takes no space at all. But back in the day, you needed a warehouse. So when people finally invented the technology to reliably sync audio tracks with film tracks and create talkies, those very much became the industry standard pretty much overnight. People very quickly lost interest in old silent films. The last silent film to be released by a mainstream studio came out in 1929, and after that, people viewed silent films as outdated. Some studios just started throwing out their silent film archives, assuming that they had no value. Some studios would actually sell old film reels because they contained small amounts of silver that recyclers could get to. Yeah, like mining gold out of, like, electronics today. Yeah, pretty much. They, they would sell it for scrap, basically. Others would actually sell old films to scrap dealers and toy makers who would cut them up and sell them as children's toys. Kids yeah. could run strips of film through old hand-crank 35mm home projectors and pretend to be at the movies. Huh. Yeah. So that's where a lot of art ended up, as a children's toy. The company Technicolor, which is a film company, they made the first color film reels, they stored a lot of the early two-color film reels in their own vaults, and when they decided to clear up the space in the vault, they offered those films back to the original studios, but most just refused to take them. They didn't see any value in this, so they were tossed. It's garbage. It's an old movie. Who wants a VHS tape of The Lion King? That's kind of <laughs> yeah, what this exactly was. exactly the attitude. As Jessica has mentioned, there was also several catastrophic fires that wiped out, like, most of film history. <laughs> Erased by the flames! <laughs> Barish in the flames. Um, it's like... I told you, fire and garbage, that's the way, that's where silent film went. It's like a bad Game of Thrones novel. Yeah. Fire and garbage. Like, it's, it's the kind of thing that, like, you do as, like, a parody of grotesque consumerism and, like, the transitory nature of our attention of art. And, like, no, nah, like, they legit did that. Old nitrate film, which is the stuff that pretty much every movie was made on until 1952, is, like... Not just flammable, it's hilariously flammable. No, it's, it's impossibly <laughs> flammable. Like, you know, like, yeah. those those complex, like, half-made-up-sounding chemicals that explode if you look at them and are only only creatable <laughs> in a laboratory with, like, a, 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 a like an antimatter fucking flinger? Like, it's, like, those things are crazy. And then, like, like <laughs> cellulite is almost as bad. Oh, yeah, we just printed movies on, like, jet fuel for, yeah. like, Shit that, like, if years. you sneeze too loud, it will explode. So nitrate film will actually spontaneously combust if you don't store it correctly. You don't even have to light it on fire. It'll do that for you. Yeah, like, it is ahead of you. So two big fires took out most of American film history. The 1937 Fox Studios vault fire destroyed all the original negatives of all films made by Fox before 1935. And the 1965 oh MGM vault fire destroyed the only remaining copies of hundreds of films created by MGM, which was basically the only major studio that really made an effort to preserve its historical films. Yeah, that's what happened to all of Nancy Reagan's sex tapes. <laughs> MGM vault fire. Uh, <laughs> basically, any like popular old movie went up in the MGM vault fire. It like these two fires were like Library of Alexandria fires to the film world. Oof. Yeah, no, it's flammable shit. Don't keep it in your living room unless, like, you you know it's been stabilized. A lot of films were also claimed by scandal. So whenever a prominent actor or actress met with a major scandal, which it wasn't just Roscoe Arbuckle, 
Hollywood types have always had a talent for this. The studios who worked with them would often start trashing any copies of their work lying around to disavow their connection to the actor. So a lot of Roscoe Arbuckle's work wasn't destroyed in the vault fire, it was intentionally pitched in a dumpster during his lifetime. (laughs) Let there be no evidence! (laughs) People will never find out that we employed this actor for ten years and they made us 408 movies. (laughs) (laughs) It's perfect. Uh, It's Um, a perfect crime! But yeah, the idea that studios just sort of threw away hundreds of boxes of priceless film history to free up storage space might feel very odd now. It's weird to think about. Yeah, it feels weird, man. Our modern era is very into historical preservationism, but people at the time really didn't think of these films as art. Silent films were made long before there was a standardized content rating system or parental advisory ratings. So some of those films are racy by today's standards. Yeah, we would consider them smut. We don't- I think there's a perception of, like, turn-of-the-century art, very buttoned up. You know, we're coming out of the Victorian era. Yeah. But this was not- Not so. Not all of this was highbrow stuff. They were very much giving the people what they wanted, and what the people wanted was titties and sparkly nipple pasties and people getting pie in the face. Oh, yeah. And they delivered. It's very similar to Shakespeare. Like, oh, yeah. Shakespeare was like- Low art. It was like peasant stuff. Low art. It was low art. No, if you- It fart jokes in it. All this stuff is out of copy right now. A lot of this stuff is in public domain. So you can just find tons of old silent films or what's left of them on YouTube, and you will be shocked at how many titties you see. Immediately. So many titties. Even in like very- Titties everywhere. Very popular things with big names. Very popular movies are just like, they're just tits. There's just tits everywhere. Tits. The German tits, ones are upsetting because it's tits, like tits, women tits. in robot costumes with tits, but <laughs> it's all very upsetting. Uh, the robot costumes just make it all the more, all the better. <laughs> Seriously. It's, beep it's boop, a... beep boop. Oh, <laughs> saucy. Go watch Metropolis. It'll upset you forever. <laughs> but no like it's it takes it often takes the culture a very long time to recognize newer forms of mass media as art and damn it jessica i did put a shakespeare example in here <laughs> we think as one but <laughs> i'm ahead of you it did the western world took a very long time to recognize live theater as a classy night out it was low-class mass entertainment for the unwashed oh, yeah. for a very long time. It's like how, like, ballerinas <laughs> were flesh-tight so they would have scantily-clad legs on stage. Ooh. Ooh. Well, I mean, there are at least two entire Shakespeare plays that have been lost to history because... They were smut. Well, yeah, Shakespeare's work was never collected in his lifetime. It was only collected after yeah. he died. It, w- it would be like... He was raunchy... Th- yeah, it'd be like collecting the works of Michael Bay today. <laughs> All right, you gonna do <laughs> fucking Shakespeare? Shakespeare was raunchy sex jokes for unwashed peasants. Nobody really, like, made an effort to collect his work until the first folio after he died. You might look at a copy of Grand Theft Auto V and not think of that as a cultural touchstone of mankind, but someday video games will almost certainly be regarded as art. Yeah, and like, and like if you think about, like, the backward compatibility issues we have today, where, like, nothing, you like, there, there's just, like, tons of works that nobody who was born at the wrong time, like, they can't even access them. You think about that, you compare that, like, no, like, there's gonna be come a time when Psychonauts is considered a classic. <laughs> and that time is now. Yes. Psychonauts is a classic. It's a classic. <laughs> Once we get over our prejudices against it as low art, we're gonna go, like, whoops, okay. <laughs> well, was, yeah, we view it important. as, like, cheap, cheap entertainment for kids now, but... 
I think we're coming out of this a little bit, but yeah, no, like, it's going to be viewed as art someday. I stand by this. We're only just now starting to appreciate comics and graphic novels as a genuine art form, and those things have been around since the 1920s. Yeah, absolutely, but Jews made them! Well, Jews Jews made all the movies, too, which is actually part of the whole thing. Yeah, it it plays very much a thing. It does play a role here. Uh, A lot of... Although Roscoe Arbuckle was not Jewish, a lot of a lot of the attempts to prosecute early movie stars were straight anti-Semitism because all the owners of the studios were Jewish. They make titty flicks that we all watch. Damn them! <laughs> a lot of a lot of a lot of American injustice dates back to racism and anti-Semitism in some form, and this is no exception. Yeah, like part of the reason why certain minorities. Like, they kind of get funneled into things that we consider low art or, like, lower cultural. Because, like, I mean, like, porn studios are not picky. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, that's... Like, they, they, they do not care what you are if they can well, sell it. The the entertainment industry was run by immigrants from a very, very early age. <laughs> it was Early Hollywood was all Jewish immigrants. That was not the actors, but the people who owned and operated the studios. But uh, after his appearance in Ben's Kid, which is obviously a hilarious comedy for the whole family and not domestic violence the movie, <laughs> Roscoe continued acting in a handful of one-reelers produced by the Selig Poliscope Company. He would remain at that company until 1913 when he moved over to Universal Pictures and then was hired on at the Keystone Film Company, where he starred in a series of Keystone Cops comedy films produced by Max Sennett. He was paid a rate of $3 a day. So if you've never seen them, the Keystone Cops were a band of bumbling, incompetent policemen who were often played by up-and-coming comedians of the day. I think there's been some attempts to revive them. I think there were modern Keystone Cops films. The Keystone Cops were like straight-up slapstick humor. They popularized many long-standing slapstick tropes like pie in the face. And they were very much known for these long, exaggerated, ridiculous chase scenes. In the beginning, the Keystone Cops themselves were the stars of the show, but as time went on, they shifted to being background characters in shows starring some of the bigger comedians, like Charlie Chaplin and Roscoe Arbuckle. So the first time a pie was ever thrown on film was actually in a Keystone Cops film starring Roscoe Arbuckle. It was a one-reeler- Yeah, he was- he was, He was one of the first. It was actually Mabel Normand who threw the first ever pie. Power couple. Power couple. It was a one-reeler from 1913 called A Noise from the Deep. Mabel Normand plays a beautiful farmer's daughter who falls in love with an obese farmhand played by Arbuckle against her father's wishes, and she throws the pie. A Noise from the Deep actually survived, but I can't find a copy of it. But if you can, go ahead. There's pie throwing and an obese farmhand. Fun for the whole family, Beautiful. Tale as old as time. What more do you need? Are you not entertained? (laughs) (laughs) She loves him, but also he is fat. And it drives them apart. <laughs> Modern day Romeo and Juliet. Throw the pie. Once he became involved with the Keystone Film Company, that's where Roscoe's popularity really exploded. As I mentioned, he refused to do cheap fat jokes. He would not participate in gags that other larger performers were expected to do, like getting stuck in chairs. A lot of his comedy came from the fact that he was actually very nimble and light on his feet. Mm. Way more so than people expected of him. He was a very competent dancer. Most performers... He's fat for back, Nick. Yeah, he could leap, tumble, somersault, juggle. He could run across the top of a moving train with the best of them. Uh, you were sort of expected to be a dancer in those days. They all could. And by necessity, his comedy was very physical. Silent film. His exaggerated movements 
were what really sold his brand of comedy. He was one of the few silent film stars who actually successfully made the leap to talkies. We do have movies he was in where we have recordings of his voice. Um, He's not half bad. Most silent film actors, their careers ended when silent film ended. Most of them did not make the jump to talkies. One of the big reasons being that over time, audiences had kind of built up an idea of what they might sound like. And a lot of their voices just, like, did not match expectations. Oh, video killed the radio star. Video very much killed the silent film star. Because when you hear some of these people talk, you're like, oh, fuck. Not what I thought you'd sound like. So you didn't have to have a pleasant voice to be in silent film. But you may have a magnificent cleft chin. When people find out you sound like Donald Duck, it's over. (laughs) Yeah, I don't don't think Roscoe Arbuckle actually sounds the way he looks. His voice is not nearly as high as I thought it would be. But it's also that silent film comedians had a hard time adapting to a new style of comedy where they had to do dialogue. It's not something they were used to having to incorporate. Oh, it's it's a very different skill set. But yeah, if you've never actually seen a Roscoe Arbuckle movie, I recommend looking, taking some time. Go watch a few. Some of his best stuff, like the 1918 film The Cook, are available on YouTube. The movies are over 100 years old now, but I think the striking thing about them is that, like, you could still understand them and they're still funny. You'll get the jokes. It's it's an, it's not that deep. He throws. Yeah, things. like there's stuff from the fifties that hasn't aged as well. <laughs> no, I like the cook is on YouTube in its entirety, and it's quite funny. There's like a he's continually like throwing random shit in a pot the whole movie, and he serves all of the meals in the movie out of the same pot: tea, soup, stew, all of it just comes out of his random pot. He throws a lot of food. It's a good show. <laughs> Buster Keaton is in it as well. And not all comedy ages well. Like, it's pretty remarkable that a movie from 100 years ago is, like, not not even understandable, but funny. Because, like, I don't know. Pop in a comedy There's from the early... There's shit from the 90s t- that isn't funny I anymore. was gonna say, pop in a movie from the early 2000s and see how many fucking excruciating minutes of that you can even sit through. It's, oh, yeah. It's bad. It's if you bad. haven't... If you enjoyed those movies in the 2000s and you haven't watched them since, go pop one on. It's yeah, It's different. Yeah, it's it, different it than you remember. Different. It hits different. <laughs> Every other joke is going to be that guy's gay or that that's a man in a dress. That's what comedy was in 2003. Yeah, it was very basic but like also not nearly as clever. Yeah. It's a it's a full body cringe when you watch that kind of thing. Yeah, it, it's it's physical. It's it's on another level. Mm-hmm. But you know, Silent film movies are kind of ageless. Watching somebody, like, frantically scrub and polish a window only to stick their head through it and reveal there's no window at all is still <laughs> funny now. It's it's just I, I as... I just thinking about it. <laughs> I know. That, that's a Roscoe Arbuckle clip. It's just as funny now as it was a century ago. It doesn't mean that all silent film aged well, though. I want... That's an important caveat. Yeah. This is an era where blackface was still very common. You couldn't curse and you couldn't show a couple in bed together, but degrading racial stereotypes were good, clean fun. For the whole family. And a lot of the commentary on gender relations really hasn't aged well. Like, there's a Roscoe Arbuckle film where he's too shy to kiss a woman, so he repeatedly chloroforms her and kisses her while she's unconscious. Oh, good, um, good clean funny fun. at the time. Horrifying. Not funny now. Yeah, her dad walks in and so he chloroforms him too. It's, yeah, today that's assault. Mm. <laughs> that's that's a horror <laughs> film, but that was comedy of the day. So Buster Keaton's films, I will say, age much better because it's all just Buster Keaton falling off yeah, of things, yeah, it's, which is funny. It's like trains like, <laughs> driving into rivers and like like houses falling down and just very upsetting stunts, but like they're fascinating at the same time. <laughs> 
Yeah, he did them all himself. He jumped off of waterfalls, he swung on ropes, and he did everything in one take. It's amazing the dude lived to be like 70. That's not right. (laughs) So Arbuckle was one of the first true movie stars in the sense that performers have been around forever, but like obsessive, weird American celebrity culture was not. That was not a thing until the early, the mid-1910s. Worship of individual American performers in the way that we do it now started then and started hard. People used to be fans of performing companies or groups, but individual performers less so. They often weren't even credited by name. Like, people loved Barnum and Bailey circuses, but they never actually knew the names of anybody who was in them. You'd go to a vaudeville act from a company that you liked, and there might be some acts there that you'd heard of, but knowing a lot about a performer's personal life was not a thing. Being wealthy and famous was typically not an outcome for people who worked in performance. That was... Circus owners became rich. The performers themselves know. So Arbuckle was quite literally one of the first people ever to experience modern American celebrity worship and to live like what we think about as a celebrity. He and a handful of his silent film star contemporaries, so people like Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, who was Canadian, um, and Douglas Fairbanks, were catapulted almost overnight from a career path that usually meant toiling in obscurity to like partying with high society and having their every move ever chronicled by the press, which has to have been weird. Oh, yeah. The same thing that happened to the Cray twins. Ha, huh, yes. <laughs> what a what a ruckus bunch those were. Mm. They were criminals, incidentally. That's, that's the joke. <laughs> yes. They became famous, they're, though. They're celebrity criminals. <laughs> celebrity criminals. The best kind. I can barely handle being an obscure niche micro-celebrity on Twitter, so I don't- I don't- I don't think I can cope with being any fame- any more famous than I am right now. It's a, it's a Seeing myself on Reddit is where I tap out. One fan magazine even ran a 1915 feature on Arbuckle's favorite meal. Oh. He was apparently partial to, and I quote, crab meat cocktail, a dozen raw oysters, fried salmon steak, roast turkey, Hungarian goulash, Roquefort cheese with crackers, and cold artichokes with mayonnaise. All at once? Yeah, no, that was his favorite meal. That was his favorite dinner. In hindsight... Maybe not that surprising that he died of heart failure in his 40s. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> maybe, that's, maybe that's the expected outcome. But yeah, this idea that performers were rich and famous and that we gave a shit about what they had for dinner kind of started with him. The Brad Pitt of his time. Brad Pitt. Well, mm, the, I, he was the John Candy of his time, but our audience probably was all born after John Candy died, so I don't know what to do anymore. Jonah Hill? Who's a sickly comedian? <laughs> yeah. Fat, sickly. I mean, like, it would have been John Panay, but no. No, I don't know. We don't have any fat, sickly comedians at the moment. I don't know. He's a, he's like a John Mulaney, just a he's sickly a dude. Huge John Mulaney. <laughs> I don't know. There's no metaphors, but he was super famous and people cared what he had for dinner. Roscoe Arbuckle and Mabel Normand became so successful during their Keystone years that Paramount Pictures basically poached them from Keystone with one of the most generous movie deals in contract history. They were offered $1,000 a day in 1914 money. That is not adjusted to modern-day money. Ooh, boy. Plus 25% of all profits from their films, plus total creative control to make whatever movies they wanted for Paramount. Yeesh. What are they, Adam Sandler? Yeah, nobody gets that kind of deal today. That's, That's bananas. It's... We've, for some reason, there's like two things that come up on this podcast often. One, the Quebec school system and how it's structured. I don't know why we've mentioned that like seven times now, but we have. Repeatedly. 
And two, the challenges of actually trying to translate the purchasing power of historical money into modern currency. Inflation affects things. It hits different. You can't just calculate a certain amount of money from, like, what money- You need in purchasing the... power. Yeah, you can't calculate- Calculating purchasing power is more complicated than plugging numbers into a calculator and looking at inflation because the relative cost of goods has changed. Yeah, you need to know what a bottle of glue was. Yeah, and, like, you're, you're, a TV used to be a thing you save for for three years. Now you can buy one on a whim at Costco. It costs yeah. nothing. It's not equivalent. It's not, yeah. So it's very hard to translate how much old-timey money is actually worth if you had it in your hands today, because things cost different amounts of money. We have no real frame of reference. But approximately, by our best calculation, $1,000 a day in 1914 works out to be more than $26,000 a day in modern-day money. So obviously they took the deal because they would have been fools not to. <laughs> and, uh, everybody was happy. Paramount, Mabel Norman, and Roscoe Arbuckle. That deal made everybody absolute buckets of money. Paramount made buckets of money. Roscoe and Mabel made buckets of money. Everybody's happy. Except the only person who's not happy with this deal is Roscoe's wife, Minta Durfee. When Paramount approached him, Roscoe Arbuckle had been in the process of finalizing a much smaller deal that would have included career provisions for his wife. Ah. He backed out of this deal to sign with Paramount. So he, th he threw Minta under the bus a little bit. Their marriage never really recovered from this. It put a strain on their relationship with the couple eventually separating in 1921, just prior to the big scandal. They did remain friends, though. So signing with Paramount might not have been the right move for his marriage, but it did turn out to be the right move for his career. Arbuckle's Paramount movies were so successful that in 1916, he founded his own production company, Comic Film Company, that would go on to make some of the most important comedies of the silent film era. And in 1917, he met a young vaudeville comedian named Buster Keaton and took him on as a protege. Buster Keaton never wanted to be a film star. Buster Keaton was a vaudeville comedian, and he was very wary about coming over to film. Buster Keaton actually started out as a vaudeville family. He was born to two vaudeville performers. On stage? Yeah, well, no, but he was born in a random... <laughs> He, they were on tour when he was born. His mother gave birth in whatever town they were in and just kept touring. Fuck it. Have it right here. The Keaton family was... Keep juggling. <laughs> well, it was, it was not even juggling. It was like weaponized child abuse. Buster Keaton's family was the Keaton family. It was him and his parents. And they used to throw him on stage. Like, he's four years old. And they're like... Juggling the child. His mother would play a saxophone while his father would hit and throw him. Just... Because, like, he could take a fall from a young age. That was that was his- Just being chucked around to yakety sacks, being Buster Keaton's backstory is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, his father would, like, literally, like, throw him into the audience. Like, they would just toss this four-year-old to the point that the Keaton family was reported to child welfare authorities in numerous states. They were investigated, like, a dozen times for child abuse. Just touring child abuse. Do you know how bad an act has to be to get you reported to child welfare in 1917? Repeatedly? Not even, in Nevada? Do you know what you have to do to a child to get investigated back then? I mean, chucking him could, on like, stage like a fucking fish is probably pretty close, yeah. <laughs> you could put a cigarette out on a child in front of a fucking church member and they would not really blink <laughs> like no they would yeah that was that's how we got to start was being tossed around by his dad like a football for comedy that was that was buster keaton it kind of explains why he had his like comfort with heights i guess so arbuckle when he met buster keaton convinced him to come on 
to do film as kind of his protege. He was the one who convinced him to have a film career, and he sort of mentored him, took him under his wing. Buster Keaton would become one of his closest and most important friends and creative collaborators, and the pair would star in 14 films together. Keaton was also Arbuckle's most passionate advocate and defender. He was one of the very few people who stuck by Arbuckle during his trial and never once wavered in his support. So by 1918, some of Arbuckle's fellow actors were starting to get tired of this model where they were locked into contracts with production companies as the production companies were increasingly demanding creative control over the films that they made. So Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks teamed up with D.W. Griffith, the dude who directed uh, the famous KKK propaganda film Birth of a Nation, to found a company called United Artists. Oh, a classic. Yeah, no, they can't. They can't all be beloved cultural icons. Some of them are, are, are not great. <laughs> yeah, Birth uh, of a Nation was some... So when some got remembered better than others, and it wasn't always just. Birth of a Nation is a difficult <laughs> film to watch in modern time. It's about how... Uh, you mean the film that s- single-handedly popularized the KKK? <laughs> yeah, they can't all be winners. Um... So, Uh, different times. United Artists was a production company founded on the idea of allowing actors to take more control over their own careers. So, the actors who joined were part owners of the company. They would get to have creative control. They would get more transparency in their budgets and more control over their finances. So, Paramount began to get very nervous that United Artists would tempt their star away from them. And in classic studio fashion, they decided to throw money at the problem. Of course. So, Arbuckle was offered a fucking unheard of deal. He was offered $3 million to make movies for Paramount for the next three years. Again, that is not $3 million in today's money. That is $3 million in 1918. Holy fuck. Dude was hilariously rich. A million dollars a year in 1918 is a lot of money. A burger costs like two cents. I mean, he was the Ashton Kusher of his day. (laughs) The same contract today, again going by a very crude inflation calculator, would be worth more than $56 million. That is a bananas amount of money to make 40-minute videos of yourself juggling frying pans and throwing pies. Basically Nicole Kidman. <laughs> is that an accurate description of Nicole Kidman's career? <laughs> is it, Jessica? Does she juggle frying pans? I mean, you know, it's the cultural equivalent. <laughs> like acting having an Australian mind... accent it's basically basically the same your mind is a labyrinth <laughs> uh, are we not all labyrinths upon which thoughts come like trained mice in search of cheese <laughs> <laughs> the fact that you heard the phrase juggling frying pans and throwing pies and your brain went straight to that's very similar to what Nicole Kidman does <laughs> Jessica, were you thrown as a child in a vaudeville family act? I mean, my mom did ventriloquism. <laughs> That's uncomfortable. <laughs> and I mean, I still dress like a vaudeville dummy, so like, you know. You do? In fact, I was gonna say, if there's one person in this world who dresses like Fatty Arbuckle, <laughs> it's Jessica. I look a lot like him, actually. You you do dress like a ventriloquism dummy, though. I don't know why I haven't made that connection before. <laughs> No, that's something I say on stage sometimes. I walk out and I go like, my mom was a ventriloquist. She dressed me today. (laughs) 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 
Oh, I'm just fascinated by the fact that, like, I don't know, you watched Nicole Kidman in Eyes Wide Shut and you were like, yes, this is slapstick vaudeville comedy. Basically the Three Stooges. <laughs> Equal emotional tension. <laughs> Fascinating. So Arbuckle obviously took the deal, that's just a hilarious amount of money, and transferred the controlling share of his production company over to Buster Keaton and went to work making hit movies for Paramount. But yeah, so a man who was once pretty much a literal street urchin working in a hotel at the age of 11 was now pretty much the highest paid actor on the planet. And Roscoe Arbuckle basically went full nouveau riche stereotype, literally trying to live like Gatsby, uh, which had not yet been written. It is very Hollywood, just like dying and end up floating in a pool. I mean, yeah, like, but the whole Hollywood lifestyle, like Roscoe originated that. Parties, expensive cars, fancy hotels, he owned a mansion. He was a Paris Hilton of his time. Oh yeah, he was eating oysters and mayonnaise. Yeah, just like her. High-priced <laughs> booze, you gotta remember this is Prohibition. He's he's drinking high-priced booze, he's got servants, you name it. He was the first celebrity to buy a professional sports team. Because that's truly the sign that you have run out of ideas for what to do with your money. He bought a baseball team called the Vernon Tigers, which doesn't, I don't think, exist anymore. Um, you haven't heard of the Vernon Tigers? They're now shooing for the World Cup next year. <laughs> Although I feel like a, a World Series is a very strong term for a sport that at most two countries like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just Japan and the U.S. and they don't play against each other. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's like... We're Canadians and we barely care. No, we don't. Uh, no, apparently the Vernon Tigers only existed until 1925. Take it out by the scandal. <laughs> Roscoe Arbuckle owned a gold bathtub. Dude, did he never found a cheap rich guy cliche he did not wholeheartedly embrace. What are you, Donald Trump? <laughs> no, not a gold toilet, but a gold bath. I think the bathtub's better. The toilet's dumb. Yeah, the toilet's stupid. Like, if you want, like, real hygiene, you go copper or silver. <laughs> but a gold bathtub that's fancy jessica's just like i just need a copper toilet and then i've made it <laughs> it's gonna be gonna be fucking green within a year like the statue of liberty <laughs> <laughs> except for like where your ass hits the toilet that part is yeah. shining bronze it's like that uh that that post you sent me about that the person who was eating pennies as part of a kink thing with a near stranger Imagine that that's the kind of toilet you need. That does sound like something I would send you. Yeah. <laughs> Just ate like a, like a dollar fifty or something. Oh yeah, that guy who ate pennies is a kink. Like three dollars. I love humanity. Yeah. We're so broken. We're so broken. <laughs> <laughs> Sexy little piggy bank. But it was ultimately one of Roscoe Arbuckle's rich dude parties that became his undoing, which we will cover in part two of. Roscoe Arbuckle will cover the the party that yeah. ruined his life. Now you know all about silent, silent film and vaudeville and... And you think your parties were terrible in middle school. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. No, no. This one involved death. Somebody dies. <laughs> Spoiler yeah. alert. Somebody straight up dies. Straight up dies. Yeah, this has been a very long introduction to movies that you don't care about because they were old when your grandmother was a child. <laughs> <laughs> Not even you, nor your father, nor your father's father has ever seen it. <laughs> nor your father's father's father. <laughs> my my grandmother may have grown up watching some of this stuff. My grandmother was born in 1919, but my family have kids weirdly wow. late in life. So that's not true for most people. 
There is a very good Roscoe Arbuckle clip you can watch where he lights a cigarette off a moving train. It's actually quite funny. Probably dangerous, but very funny. <laughs> Hilarious. How did he have both hands? <laughs> <laughs> Love that. But we hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, I'm Jessica. And I'm Janelle. And what is this podcast called, Jessica? Histories and Mysteries. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> I did it. <laughs> Huzzah, we will let you live. How you mock me. <laughs>